Welcome to the Codifier Podcast. Codifier is a podcast about emerging trends and technologies with the aim to create bite-sized entertaining content for everyone from software developers to sales gurus to even your parents so that they can stay clued in and techno-savvy in today's ever-changing world. And welcome to Codifier Episode 6. As always, I'm here with you. My name is Steve Jaguer, and this episode is again a part one of two discussing blockchain security and the cryptocurrency a boom that's been going on over the past well i'd probably say about a year uh, but it went particularly crazy in august and around november last year where mainstream cryptocurrencies like bitcoin and litecoin had four or five ten times increase in value and the media really took notice and to be frank, we're guilty because the very first podcast Codifier ever did was on Bitcoin and its history. Ever since, I've been truly fascinated by the entire crypto world. And thanks to Bitcoin, it's fair to say that the word blockchain is a buzzword, like DevOps or Zumba. I think it's worth saying at the moment that this podcast is largely in part down to the company I work for, Synopsys, the Software Integrity Group, who asked me to write an article for them about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and security. So the blog version or show notes version of this is going to be on the Synopsys website. So I'll be linking to that in the show notes for this particular podcast if you want to read through anything that I'm talking about. And I don't know, there's a lot of links to, to reference material in there as well. So got that out of the way. Uh, what I'm not going to do in this particular podcast is talk about what blockchain is. I recommend you go back to the very first Codifier podcast about Bitcoin to go through that because I've already kind of done that. And actually, you can research that on the internet. So getting back to Bitcoin. To some, Bitcoin is a load of crap, a spoof currency <laughs> trapped in a speculative bubble like tulips 400 years ago. To others, uh, Bitcoin and its, all of its altcoin brethren are the future of financial exchange. In 2017, we saw a growing frequency of news about Bitcoin millionaires. We heard about Bitcoin tragedies where people had lost their hard drive with millions and millions of dollars of Bitcoin on it. We saw Bitcoin scandals, which I won't get into, but you can, you can research quite a few of those, and various Bitcoin exchanges being hacked and shut down. Now, for the millions who have invested or are considering investing, I use that term extremely loosely, uh, in cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and the ever-growing list of altcoins, little has been mentioned about the software, the infrastructure, etc., upon which these cryptocurrencies are based. Now, with all early adoption of technology, there is risk. Not just the fact that these, the value of these currencies goes up and down with the wind. And with risk, there's a natural inclination to question the security of blockchain, Bitcoin, and the potential for cyber attack against it. Now, in spite of the fact that Bitcoin is nearing its 10th birthday, many technology companies are looking at blockchain technologies and estimating its actual functional maturity to be 5 to 10 years away. Many Bitcoin influencers, Aaron Shearer, founder of Nexer, for example, described Bitcoin as a constant dare to hackers to try and break it. It's like a, the ultimate bounty competition. And 
That makes sense. I mean, the market cap, which means essentially the total value of Bitcoin in the world, it's around, well, it's over 200 billion. And that's a certainty that hackers are working around the clock to find ways to dismantle the tech and try and steal that gold. Now, in spite of that, it's fair to say that Bitcoin and blockchain have stood their ground. So actually, that's pretty impressive. But what I'm going to do now is take blockchain from a security perspective, look at its history, successes, failures, what we can do to keep our eyes wide open on this crazy roller coaster ride of cryptocurrency investing, aka gambling. Blockchain super guru Melanie Swan, author of Blockchain Blueprint for a New Economy, described blockchain as, quote, a mechanism for updating truth states in distributed network computing through consensus trust. Overall, a new form of general computational substrate. Do you feel lonelier at parties already having heard that? Yes. That is complicated. Easier to understand was Sally Davis from the Financial Times who said that blockchain is to Bitcoin what the internet is to email, a big electronic system on top of which you can build applications. Ah. That's easier to understand. From the perspective of cryptocurrency, the blockchain is just the digital ledger. Uh, frankly, until blockchain hit the spotlight, the word ledger hadn't crossed my path since Andy Dufresne and his cinematic prison escape in Shawshank Redemption. If you hadn't seen that, if you haven't seen, what? If you haven't seen Shawshank Redemption, Okay, that's essential homework. You've got to go do that. If you want to dive deeper into blockchain technology, please feel free. Uh, the, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to talk about Merkle trees or any of that other geek stuff. But what I will do is I'm going to get into the bits that make up a cryptocurrency so that you can get an understanding of what some of the terms are and where some of the vulnerabilities are. So breaking it down, the attack surface of, let's say, Bitcoin. The three main components are the network, the wallet, and the wallet storage or software. And that seems a bit uh, confusing at first. The network, that's blockchain itself, a list of all transactions, essentially a database. And the database is maintained by all the nodes. The nodes are known as miners in this distributed network. The database, in the case of many cryptocurrencies, is public. Anyone can view it. There we go. That's the network. The wallet. The wallet is more like a digital address uh, with the ownership of a certain quantity. It's more conceptual than physical, kind of like an email address. Now, the wallet storage, or the software that kind of facilitates all of this, probably sounds the same, but it isn't. Think of the difference between your physical wallet and where you store your physical wallet, such as your back pocket on a busy Paris street. Probably not a good place to put it. So let's talk a little bit more about the network or the ledger or the blockchain itself. So if you consider typical database breaches, that can be the result of insecure coding practices or poorly configured servers, social engineering like we talked about in the ransomware episode, or perhaps even an insider threat. Now, if you consider blockchain or more generally any decentralized technology, Bitcoin's original blockchain model achieved something at the core of the design which was cutting out the central trusted authorities, in this example, banks. 
and solving two major security problems. The first is the Byzantine general's problem of establishing consensus trust over a distance. And the second is the problem of double spending. And those were solved way back in the beginning with this hashing mechanism known as Hashcash. And that making it makes it unfeasibly difficult, let's say, for a malicious party to tamper with a block in the chain. And again, I reckon, recommend you go back and listen to the Bitcoin uh, podcast back in November. So what that means is because it takes a considerable amount of work to disrupt the network and work as money and time, it's actually generally more lucrative to just join the network, do some mining, and recalling the old idiom, if you can't beat them, join them. Now I'll draw a simpler analogy that is of course closer to my heart. The act of centralization typically acts as a target. Now be that physical or conceptual, it can become a single point of failure. Now examples being a bank, or an Amazon S3 bucket for the more geek inclined, or even a referee in sports. These are all examples. Now I'm going to talk about the last one. If you observe a game of soccer or football to the rest of the world, you'll see a relatively high number of players attempting to game the referee by diving or pleading or concealing a tent, anything to gain advantage. It's so common that it's become a part of the sport, and you know one that ruins it, in my humble opinion. Now, I've been playing a sport called Ultimate Frisbee for years and years, and like many others who enjoy this sport, have been fascinated by its self-refereeing, even at the highest level. And yes, that means there are no referees, even on a world stage. Now, without the presence of a centralized, trusted third party making decisions, the referee, the on-field players themselves are called on to form a form of distributed refereeing or a form of consensus trust, consensus refereeing, and in this case with majority ruling. And it works. Essentially, players are rewarded for playing the right way rather than the wrong way. Ultimate Frisbee, ladies and gentlemen, look it up. Blockchain. Blockchain. Okay. That little ditty was a reference to the fact that just about everything is whacking a blockchain on it. And my reference to soccer or football just now is uh, is certainly not immune to that. I saw an advert in the on the EasyJet magazine. I was other other airlines are available, of course, uh, where it said the future of football is blockchain, and they were making a a digital currency for the professional football game, bringing the world closer to the beautiful game. Sounds like a load of crap, but I'll have to investigate. And that's something I'm going to do in a future podcast. I'm going to be looking into some of the weirder applications of blockchain, some that seem like, I don't know, complete nonsense. Uh, but in order to hear that, hey, why not subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Stitcher, subscribe via Android, and be a part of the ongoing uh, future of Codifier. Thanks for listening. This is episode six, blockchain security and the cryptocurrency boom. Let's get back to it. So is blockchain perfect? Good question. Not really, no. When Bitcoin started, the miners in the network who participated in processing that blockchain, maintaining the network were people like you and me, normal people. Early technology adopters were keen to be a part of this disruptive technology it was truly distributed. It was a network of consensus trust, and it worked. 
Since then, mining has become big business, as you can imagine, with companies setting up mining farms in countries with cheap electricity like Iceland to try and mine as many new Bitcoins as possible. Now, the result of this is something called the 51% problem. If a single party possesses 51% of the mining pool, it's possible for them to falsify an entire block into the blockchain, allowing for some of those problems I mentioned earlier, like double spending, or even to fork a new chain off to the advantage of the mining pool. Now, that sounds complicated. I'm not going to get really into it, but you can get the idea that when anyone has 51%, they have a controlling interest. And it's more real a problem than you might think. There was a company, ghash.io, who actually achieved the 51% several times in Bitcoin's history. But there is a theoretical security against that. Bitcoin developers and miners have insisted that a major part of the value of Bitcoin lies in its security. So, with that in mind, any malicious act against the network by miners or developers who have a vested interest in it would instantly and radically devalue the currency. That would render any effort to undermine the network for personal gain a substantial long-term loss. Nevertheless, that 51% problem still remains a concern. But via distribution, the success is that blockchain has provided itself a robust self-check mechanism. Ideally, any attempt to compromise one version or many versions of the blockchain ledger would be detected by all others as a minority difference and rendered invalid by the consensus trust network. The notion of bank robbery essentially goes away. So we've got a nice positive warm glow about the blockchain now. Let's talk about the wallet. Transactions on the blockchain are registered as peer-to-peer, wallet-to-wallet transfers of set amounts of cryptocurrency. Again, we're going to use Bitcoin as the example. Mainly for simplicity, there are cases where more complex blockchain protocols are involved, such as the Ethereum network, where the transaction could be a stage in a smart contract. That details beyond the scope of this podcast, but I will get into that in a later podcast. The term wallet is, it's a bit of a misnomer as it implies something tangible. In the cryptocurrency world, a wallet is little more than a private key. Now, when I say private key, and if you need a little bit more reading on what asymmetric key encryption is, I suggest you check out the show notes to, and look at some of the articles there. For the purpose of simplicity, think of your key as, as that email address concept that we talked about earlier. Now, in terms of security, this is an interesting story. The security of your cryptocurrency investment comes down largely to how you store this private key, because actually, unlike an email address, this is meant to be private, because this is what you use to send money to other people, or how they can use to send money to themselves if it gets into the wrong hands. If that happens, they can import it and start spending all your money. It's a little bit like a password, which gives you access to a vault. So you might start to think, can somebody guess my password? And it's actually very similar to, if you go back to our last podcast about passwords, it's a similar mechanism of encryption in that it's a 256-bit key. And you might think, okay, that's that's actually quite complex compared to a password I might think of. Um, and you would be right. The odds of guessing, just out of the blue, a 256-bit number is one in a big number. Actually, the number is so big that I can't read it. It's 
115, I feel like I have to be Dr. Brian Cox to say this, billion, 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 billion. The odds are far better of you guessing a credit card number. That I can actually say is 9,000 billion billion. (laughs) And the odds of guessing a lottery number, one in about 13 to 20 billion. So you're... It, it's easier to go and try and get money that way, to buy lottery tickets, than it would be to try and guess somebody's private key in their Bitcoin wallet. In fact, it's more difficult to guess your Bitcoin wallet number than it would be to guess the atom in the Milky Way that I'm thinking of right now. I'd like to thank Michael Kerbleski at Medium, who wrote an article with those, who worked out those actual numbers. So are you feeling safe no one can guess your private key for your wallet? I hope so. It's pretty much impossible. So now, while the private key is used to send money, you use that private key as part of your wallet to generate something called a public key. And that's something you give to other people to send money to you. Because as we mentioned, you don't want to give out your private key because that means they have control of the vault. Now, you might think, well, if someone's got a public key that's been generated from my private key, can they reverse engineer the public key to determine the private one? I realize this is a complex thing, but it's part of the security of a blockchain. It relies upon that. Asymmetric encryption like this is founded on one direction being really easy and the other being really difficult in that it's really easy to generate the public key from the private, but it's impossible to go the other direction. Now, I've heard one expert claim that reverse engineering a private key from a public key would take the power of the sun and the rest of time to do it. Another expert said that the world's most powerful computer would need four with 31 zeros years to try and do that. So I feel pretty safe with those numbers, you know. Um, And the only one caveat I, I did read in a joke article was that somebody was claiming that quantum computing will undo all of this. And frankly, that was probably correct. When quantum computing becomes more mainstream, it will be computing on another level that will be able to potentially undo a lot of this technology. However, it's a long way away. And by the time that comes around, this whole world of cryptocurrencies and blockchains we're talking about will have changed so significantly, who knows where we'll be. Let's not speculate more than we already are. So your wallet's private key is used to generate the public key. People use that to send you money. But the wallet software that does this for you is responsible for using your private key to send money to others. It does this by signing the transaction using something called the ECDSA, or the Elliptical Curve Digital Signature Algorithm. Now, if you really want to dig into that, I didn't want to dig into it, but I had to a little bit for this podcast. The article on Wikipedia about this system actually says that you can reverse engineer to private keys if the random number used to generate the public key is faulty, meaning it's not actually random. This happened in 2013 and then again in 2015. This is because wallet applications like for your phone or some of the ones online primarily used, were found to be using something called a pseudo-random number generator, 
or aka a rubbish random number generator. In one case, the random number generator wasn't generating a random number at all, but was using the same number every time. That's a pretty huge software bug. Now it's been said in a variety of ways that the best way to keep your crypto safe is to not spend it at all because you couldn't trust the creators of the wallet software to have implemented that ECDSA correctly. And what's a bit shameful about that is that there are tools out there that you can run to analyze the, the code that you're writing and tell you about these kind of minor failings in, in secure coding practices uh, before you release the product. But, you know, as with any major big waves of technology like blockchain, commercial software development projects are driven by time to market pressure and those overwhelm basic requirements for quality and security. Now, I've mentioned online wallets and mobile wallets, and I think it's worth talking about the different ways to store your public key. And that'll be the end of this part one. So I'm going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger because I'm not going to get quite into the detail of them. But it's sufficient to say there are two different ways or categories, I should say, of storage of your wallet. The first is called a hot wallet, and that means it's connected to the internet. That can be a desktop application, a mobile application, or just an online service that you log into that maintains your private keys. Now, a good example of, say, an online wallet would be something like Coinbase. Uh, and that's sort of like cryptocurrency exchange for, for dummies. And to be, um, you know, I'll include myself in that. I certainly started with Coinbase. So that's a good example of that. There are numerous uh, mobile wallets, like blockchain.info is an example of that, and many desktop wallets. And there are pros and cons to all of those. Now, there's another category called a cold wallet, which is disconnected from the internet, and that is considered largely to be much safer. And it sounds odd, because how can you be doing online transactions with a, with a disconnected device? Now, I'll talk a little bit about the hardware wallet to start. Hardware wallets are dedicated hardware, typically a USB device that you plug in, but it's designed specifically to hold cryptocurrency uh, keys, keep them safe and keep them away from the internet when you're not making transactions. The idea around that is that you can transport them, you can keep them secure, you can put them in an actual vault, and they're generally considered to be quite safe, certainly hacker independent. Good examples of this, if you want to look at them up, are a Trezor wallet or Ledger Nano S. I, I use the latter, the Ledger Nano S. And an alternative cold wallet, and this probably is going to sound like I'm, I'm I'm, I'm having a bit of a laugh here. The paper wallet. It's a piece of paper. I'm not kidding. Uh, you, you can convert your, your keys to a QR code, both the public and the private. So you can show somebody who wants to send your money the public QR code, and most apps will, will scan a QR code, and they can use that to send you money. And your private key is just held on your own, quietly, privately, in a vault, a piece of paper. Now, of course, you can still fall victim to classic moron screws-ups like losing the piece of paper, you know, writing your phone number and giving it to somebody, spilling coffee on it, using it for kindling, whatever. But it is considered actually to be quite a secure way of storing your keys. So, we're just over 20 minutes, which means we've gone through some of the security aspects of the blockchain as it pertains to the Bitcoin network, its inherent strengths, some of the unlikely but very possible weaknesses as well. We've also shown that the cryptography used for these transactions is incredibly safe, but only 
if the wallet is managed by a robust application following the sort of sound secure development practices that I would recommend. And we've also learned that there are many different options available and briefly talked about both. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave you here until two weeks time when we go through part two of blockchain security and the cryptocurrency boom. So thanks for listening. This has been Codifier, episode six, part one of blockchain security and cryptocurrency. Tune in in two weeks time for part two. And until then, why not subscribe to us on whatever great podcasting source you use. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Codifier. Twitter, our handle is Codifier. And hey, we've even got an Instagram account, codifier.co.uk on Instagram. That's fresh and new. Want to check us out there. All right. Thanks very, thanks very much. I'm Steve Jaguar. See you in a few.